What I want to do this morning is we'll be taking a look at the subject of the Holy Spirit and the subject of prophecy. That's a big idea, and there's a lot of weird misconception about the idea of prophecy and some weird stuff that oftentimes gets passed along as and under the banner of prophecy. And even by mentioning the word prophecy, for some of you might be a little bit nervous, you're like, oh, great, this is finally Brian's going to reveal his true colors. It's just a nut job. But Others of you might be like, this is great. Finally, we're going to go crazy on this. So what I want to try to do is the subject of prophecy in the light of the Holy Spirit. My hope is to try to bring some balance to this um, really much-needed topic. And really, at the end of the day, that when it's done right, if it's done right, can bring incredible strength, encouragement, uplifting to the church. So with that being said, I want to start with a question. And the question, really simple, and the question is, does God still speak Today, it's a big question. Does God still speak today? I think if I were to ask all of you, kind of take a little poll, most of you probably, in fact, probably all of you, I would say, with the exception of maybe a handful, um, would agree that, yes, God still speaks today. Where this gets a little bit nuanced is the question of uh, how does God speak? And some would say that God only speaks. You kind of have two extremes within many churches in America today. And the one extreme, you have churches that say that God only speaks through Scripture, period. There's no other alternative ways by which God speaks, that the, the canon of Scripture is the only way. It's not, there's no other way beyond that. Others would say, you don't even really need the Scripture, to the opposite ex- extreme again. Others might say on an opposite extreme that you don't re- really necessarily need the Scriptures. Uh, they might be helpful, and to some degree it might take a very low view of the Scriptures. Um, but the point of the matter is, is that yes, God speaks. So what I want to try to understand a little bit is how does God speak? And the word that we use here today is the subject of prophecy. So I want to read a passage out of the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verse 1, and we'll just read a short little passage. Uh, I'll make a couple very quick little comments on it, and then we're going to go through a lot of passages throughout the Bible, and then we will make ourselves land back on this passage of 1 Corinthians. So hopefully that makes sense. So with that, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, Paul starts off by saying this, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. So Paul is writing to this Corinthian community of followers of Jesus, and he's saying, uh, love each other, but pursue these spiritual giftings or spiritual manifestations of God's presence, um, particularly pursue prophesying, prophecy, speaking. So that's what I want to really try to understand a little bit. But all of this has to do with a linkage to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's why we're looking at the subject of the Holy Spirit and prophecy. So with that, let me pray real quick, and then we'll look at a definition, and then we'll begin to kind of backtrack into some of the backstory of what prophecy is and really the bigger subject matter as to whether or not, how does God speak, what are the ways in which God speaks, and hopefully um, broadening our understanding of this. So God, right now, we ask for your help. We ask that you would just open our eyes to see that you are a God that does great things and open our ears to hear that you're a God that speaks. Um, We want to hear what you have to say. We want hearts that are also quick to respond to all that you have to say. Um, So God, help us understand how Paul had in mind this ministry, this manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the, the presence of God, the holy presence of God in the midst of your people. So God, Speak now and give us words. I pray that you would help me to articulate and communicate and God areas that uh, I need help. I pray that you would just be my help. And we commit this time in your hands. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start by just giving a definition. And I thought it would be great to give a definition by one of my favorite pastors, a guy by the name of John Piper. Some of you guys know who he is. Um, And what I like about John Piper's definition is that John Piper, some of you may or may not know that even though John Piper is oftentimes traditionally typically described as what's called a Calvinist, John Piper also uniquely would describe himself as sort of a charismatic, meaning there's a big theological word for it called a continuationist. So if you have no idea what this is, don't worry about it. Um, But the idea is that he believes the Holy Spirit still works and moves in the world today. One of the ways in which the Holy Spirit still works and moves in the world today is God speaks, God communicates. Um, John Piper is not alone in this. He also uh, is really good friends with a scholar slash theologian, a guy by the name of Wayne Grudem, happens to be one of my favorite uh, theologians, and he kind of 
uh, help, I think, probably articulate John Piper in his definition. Um, so that's one spectrum. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have uh, kind of nutty people, nut jobs, crazy people, if you want to think of it that way, that see the Holy Spirit speaking in everything. In reality, it may or may not necessarily be the Holy Spirit. And this oftentimes paints a really bad picture to the point where some people look at those types of extreme examples and for the most part entirely redefine their theological presuppositions based upon really bad examples. Okay? So in other words, maybe some of you have known Christians that have talked about prophecy or have supposedly given prophecies, and it's just absolutely crazy, all right? Crazy talk, crazy people to the point where you're like, okay, this must not be accurate. There must be no subject of prophecy whatsoever. That's on the other extreme. On the other extreme, you have those that would say that God doesn't speak in those ways. God speaks only completely, really, through his, the Bible. One of my favorite examples of this is, is I would say one that would kind of lean towards that area would be a guy that I have great respect for, John MacArthur. And John MacArthur is a wonderful, brilliant uh, Bible teacher, Bible scholar. His church is fantastic. And he would kind of um, be on this particular realm um, of really seeing that God's, God's speaking is really mainly through Scripture alone, period. And that it's not through any other means such as this. So for the most part, this is what I like about Piper. Is Piper, I think, is kind of this nice uh, center point between extreme nutcases and those that would maybe not necessarily see or want to see, uh, recognize that maybe God actually can still speak today through means that we would call prophecy. You guys following along so far? Okay, here's the definition. John Piper says this. Prophecy is a message in human words usually made to the gathered believers based on a spontaneous Personal revelation from the Holy Spirit. So that's a, that's a mouthful right there, because I'll break it down real quick, all right, in case you missed it. Prophecy is a message in human words. God speaks through a human agent. This human agent, obviously, is a human being, you and I, um, usually made to gather believers. So in other words, it's typically done within a community of people, like church service or small group, a community group, whatever, um, uh, on a spontaneous revelation. So in other words, you weren't necessarily looking for this, or maybe you were looking for it, and God just kind of puts this thought, this image, this word, this phrase, in your mind, and then you communicate it. And then he says, it's for the purpose. In other words, it gives us kind of a, a purpose statement. Why does God give these things? Well, Piper goes on to say, for edification, encouragement, consolation, comfort, uh, conviction, or guidance. But not necessarily free from the mixture of human error. So in other words, uh, human beings who hear from God may or may not, in communicating that statement that God shared or God communicated may or may not get it right. In other words, it might not come out accurately or it might not be interpreted rightly or the uh, application of that might not be right. So in other words, he describes it as that it's not, uh, not necessarily free from human error and thus needs assessment on the basis of apostolic teaching. In other words, the Bible, we compare it with the Bible. Does it contradict the Bible? If it contradicts the Bible, then it cannot be from God. In other words, God does not speak things through any other agents that are going to contradict his Bible. So in other words, if someone comes to you and says, I have a word from God that you should go divorce your spouse or that you should go sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend, then you know for sure that that is not scriptural. That is not a prophecy from God because Holy Spirit would never tell you to violate what God has already said or stated within his written word. So he goes on to say, uh, or to find spiritual mature wisdom. So in other words, find other people that love Jesus, that have the Holy Spirit living within them, and test these things, in other words. So hopefully that definition makes a little sense, and uh, we'll kind of begin to work from that to follow through Scripture how that we really believe that God is a speaking God. God communicates. God has things to say. Um, and I actually did a whole couple messages on how God speaks. Because at the beginning of this message series on the Holy Spirit, I spent a whole two weeks, I think, looking at how God speaks. And predominantly, we know that God really does speak through the Word of God. We value, we love the Word of God. And yet, God also at the same time is not necessarily limited to that. That God can speak and does, as we'll see, through other agents, through other means. And so hopefully this all makes sense. So let's jump in, take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I'll go through these kind of quickly. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is the easiest passage, I think, for all of you to find as you're following along. All right? Page 1. All right? Page 
1 in your Bible, Genesis 1, 1 through 3. It starts out and begins to give us kind of uh, uh, the characters that are at play within this big, grand narrative called Scripture. It starts off by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then it goes on to say in verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness, uh, key phrase, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So some question has, you know, and at times in the past has arisen, why doesn't it say, and God uh, was over the face of the deep? Why is this, there's this introduction to the Spirit of God? And the Spirit of God, the Hebrew scholars would have recognized that this is a description of God's, God's voice. Um, so in the Hebrew, the word that's actually used there for spirit is the Hebrew word ruach, ruach. So I'm going to have you guys all say it in just a second here, ruach. But the way that you got to say it, you got to say it with that, like, <sighs> you guys okay with that? All right? Make sure you want to check with the person sitting in front of you to make sure you don't spit. But to help with that, I'm going to have you put your hand in front of your mouth, all right? On the count of three, everybody pick up your hand, put it in front of your mouth. This is kind of the object lesson here. Say on the count of three, ruach, okay? One, two, three, ruach. Okay, question, what did you feel when you said that? What did you feel? Not a trick question, what did you feel? Some of you are doing it again, like, I feel. You felt breath, all right? You felt wind. You felt a gust. That's what you felt. And the implication is that that's what God was doing over the face of the deep. God spoke, and that speaking, the ruach, the word ruach can also be translated throughout the Old Testament as being wind or breeze or gust of air. The implication is that God's ruach brought light out of the darkness, that God's spirit, God's presence was doing something creative. But God did that through speaking. There was an action on God's behalf of communicating, speaking uh, through this Holy Spirit, the Holy Ruach of God. We're told that God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, it goes on to describe, it says, and God said... In verse 9, and God said. He followed this theme in verse 11, and God said. Verse 20, 24, 28, and God said. So you get the implication, the idea that Moses, who authored the book of Genesis, was trying to convey and communicate that God is a, among other things, a speaking God. God communicates. God speaks. And God speaks through his ruach. Does that make sense? You guys following along so far? So, Secondly, I want you to go forward in your Bible to the book of Numbers. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, Turn forward to Numbers. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11. This is the story of Moses. Moses was sort of this uh, spokesman that God called. He becomes sort of a leader of the people of Israel. God equips him or uh, calls him to do a specific task. And with what you begin to uh, see is that Moses becomes this agent for God's speaking. So what we see is that God is a speaking God, but oftentimes the way that God speaks or communicates is through human agencies. Does that make sense so far? God uses human agents to convey or to communicate his thoughts. In this case, it's uh, Moses. And so what we see in Numbers chapter 11 says this, verse 24 says, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders and of the people, and he placed them uh, around the tent. Verse 25, And the Lord came down in a cloud, and he spoke to him. And he took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. So it's kind of a strange scenario, but we see is Moses, the spokesman of God, is in this tent. All right, just think of it as like a tent of meeting. It was a special place where Moses would go and hang out with God. They were in the wilderness, so they didn't have like brick-and-mortar places to go worship. They just had an actual tent. So Moses went into this tent. God would speak to Moses. And again, the story tells us, the writer of the story tells us that the Spirit of God uh, went beyond Moses to a group of 70 leaders that were part of Israel. So what we begin to see here is that the presence of God, the Spirit of God, begins to broaden. It's not just on Moses. It goes upon several other leaders uh, 70 to, to be exact, and probably even a little bit more, uh, that begin to receive the Spirit of God. And then as they receive the Spirit of God, they also begin to prophesy. You guys follow along so far? So in verse 26, it says, 
uh, now two men remained in the camp. So in other words, these guys were not in the tent. All right, so that's, that's the implication. That these two guys, uh, it tells us that their names are Eldad and Medad. It says that the spirit rested on them. So whatever it is about these guys, that they were not in the tent uh, with the 70 other elders, the 70 other leaders uh, from Moses. These people were outside of the tent. It says, and they were among uh, those registered, and they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And the young men ran to Moses and told him, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua said to Moses, my Lord, Moses stopped them. But Moses said to him, I would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So in other words, what I think is happening here is that these two guys, uh, Eldad and Medad, are, were not part of that, that, that group that were in the tent, but somehow the Spirit of God gets on them and they begin to communicate or prophesy, which is exactly what uh, the writing there in Numbers tells us, that they're speaking forth. And then Joshua and a couple other people come to Moses, kind of like tattling, like, hey, these guys are not part of us. They didn't go through the steps or the process of the way that we got this uh, prophetic word from God. And so therefore you've got you to stop them is the implication. And Moses is like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. I wish all of God's people, all of God's people, would somehow be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak. You guys following on? So that seems to be what's happening here. Turn forward real quick to the book of Joel, chapter 2. Joel, chapter 2. Um, Joel was a prophet. Prophets were unique people in Israel, and oftentimes they were not part of the establishment of religion. They were sometimes people working on the margins of the religious institution. In other words, a lot of the prophets were not necessarily like a priest or a scholar or a theologian. They were just kind of normal, everyday people that somehow God would appoint, and then they would begin to speak forth and communicate the word and the ideas and the thoughts of God. And so Joel was kind of in this particular state. God speaks through Joel, and Joel then begins to envision. This is one of the things that prophets oftentimes would do. Based upon God's strength and empowerment upon them, they would imagine. So think of it this way. They imagined a day in the future of what would life be like one day when Yahweh fully comes. So this is what the job of the prophets would do. And so think of a prophet living within a day and an age where there's a lot of brokenness and uh, ruin and people's lives that are messed up and people that say that they're following God, but they're really not following God. Instead, rather than bring healing and wholeness and life into this world by their words and their actions are being in brokenness and destruction. So Joel would be this guy that's thinking like, what would it be like one day when God would fully come and people's lives would be fully impacted by God and live for God? What would it look like? So Joel imagines by the Holy Spirit's impression, verse 2, he says this, and it shall come to pass afterward. Uh, in the latter days, the idea is, in other words, after the occasion in which Joel is speaking, Joel envisions that whatever God's speaking to him, that whatever's going to happen is going to happen someday in the future from wherever Joel's at. And it says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All flesh. So in other words, not just Moses, not just 70, not just a couple other people randomly picked or selected in the group. In other words, God's spirit will be poured out on all flesh, not an elite group of people, not super saints, not uber Christians, all people is what he's describing. All people that would follow or be followers of Yahweh. So he says, shall come to pass, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. There's our word. And your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. So the idea is that one day, Joel envisions a day in which God's presence, God's sacred, holy presence, will somehow be so real, so tangible, if you would, upon the heart's in the lives of Yahweh's people, that they will all be filled with the Spirit of God and they will all speak of the living words of God. Following along so far? Good. All right, turn backwards in your Bible a little bit to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Again, some of these Old Testament books, if you have no idea where they're at, there's absolutely no shame whatsoever looking at the beginning of the Bible called the Table of Contents. That's totally fine. The Bible's a big book. So Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, Jeremiah also was a prophet, so everything I said about Joel probably would also be in alignment with Jeremiah. So Jeremiah envisions a day in the future, and here's what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand, um, when I took them, sorry, let me go back. Uh, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them uh, by the hand to bring out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, he says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So the picture that Jeremiah is envisioning is that one day, God will, see the little passage right there where it says, God will actually write upon their hearts his Torah. That's what the word law means. It's got the Torah of God. This, the Torah, if you want to think of it this way, are the words of God that were written down. And God's promising that one day I will actually take my Torah and I will put it on the hearts of all of Yahweh's people. It will be in their hearts. It will be in their minds. So Jeremiah envisions a time when one day all of God's people will be given this living Torah, living word, and whereby they are inhabited by the richness, the life-giving element of God's word itself upon their hearts. Okay? Follow along? Let's go in the New Testament to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We're beginning to make our way back to the passage in 1 Corinthians. Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is a story after Jesus rose again from the dead. Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus tells his disciples, go to Jerusalem, hang around until one day the Holy Spirit will be given to you. So this is a very momentous occasion in the history of the people of Jesus. And during this occasion, we're told in verses 1 through 4, Acts chapter 2, it says, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, this is 50 days after Passover. So 50 days after the Passover was this day called Pentecost. When Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one location, one place. We call this the upper room. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were all sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them, and they rested on each, of, each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So again, notice what he's saying. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all began to speak. Tells us here, they all began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, which I'm not going to go into the background of tongues and so on and so forth. But the point that I want to make is that they were speaking. The Holy Spirit was upon them, and they were speaking, communicating the wonderful works of God. So again, the theme is God speaks. God speaks through agents. God speaks through agents by the Holy Spirit. So you guys following along, this large theme that's being conveyed throughout the Bible. Go on down to about verse 14 and 17. It says, And Peter, standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Because what was going on here right now caused a lot of commotion. There's a lot of concern and questions that was arising in the minds of the people that were watching this. Because you can imagine, something new is being birthed and unfolded in front of their eyes. And there's a lot of question, like, what in the world is happening? So Peter stands up, and here's what Peter has to say. He says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, he says, He lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea... And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to what I have to say. For those people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. So in other words, there's a lot of accusations that these people are doing crazy things because they're all drunk. Peter says, no, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk, which oftentimes doesn't stop a lot of people from getting drunk at 9 in the morning. But the point of the matter is Peter's like, we are not drunk. But what's happening here, he says in verse 16, but this is that which was uttered through the prophet Joel, which we just read Joel. Here's what it says. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. So the implication is that in these latter times, something new is being launched. That rather than the Holy Spirit just being designated to a small elite class of leaders, in the case of Moses or the 70 elders, they, prophets, all the prophets envisioned a day in which God would take his living Torah, his living word, his living breath, and breathe upon all followers of Yahweh. And what Peter's doing is he's standing up and he's saying, hey, that whole day in which Jeremiah prophesied, which Joel looked forward to, that's happening right this instant. That everything that you've heard of, that you've dreamed about, that you've thought about, that the prophets prophesied, it's happening right now. This is that 
day come to pass. This is the new era, if you would, that we've all looked into, that we've all hoped for. It's happening right before your eyes. So you can get a flavor of the intensity of emotion that this is something brand new that has never happened on planet Earth is beginning to happen. You can sense the rumblings. Does that make sense to you guys? So whatever happened on Pentecost, Peter is saying this is the, the vast fulfillment of everything that's been talked about up until this point. That God is moving God's presence, God's sacred spirit is coming in the hearts and the minds and the lives of his people and they are speaking. God's communicating. Finally, turn real quick to Acts chapter 21, then we'll jump back into the passage in Corinthians. Acts chapter 21, verses 10 through 14. We're told that while we were staying for many days, um, this is probably, this is no doubt written by Luke, but it's a reference to Luke and Paul. These guys were on what we would call a missionary journey. They're going around from city to city, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and so on and so forth. So here's Luke and Paul. It says that while we were staying for many days, there was a prophet named Agabus who came down from Judea. So again, this is a prophet. He comes down from Judea, which kind of gives us this little uh, indication that in the early church, that there were uh, or seemed to be some sort of role of a prophet, which Paul seems to affirm in, first, in the book of Ephesians where he describes that there's some pastors and prophets and evangelists and teachers uh, that do the work of the ministry, or that I should say equip the saints so that they can do the work of the ministry. So, in other words, there's an indication of this guy, Agabus, who's this prophet. He comes down from Judea and says, And he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own feet in his hands, and he said... So, again, just imagine in your mind, I picture, thinking images oftentimes, here's Paul, here's Luke, and a group of other people sitting down eating falafel, all right? I uh, like Mediterranean food, so I imagine here they are eating hummus with some really great um, pita bread, and all of a sudden this guy, Agabus, comes out of nowhere, walks in the room, he sees Paul, walks up to Paul, takes his belt off of Paul's body. Paul's kind of like, what are you doing, you know? The guy all of a sudden wraps his arms, he says, this is exactly, and then he describes it, he says, thus says this Holy Spirit. So Agabus says, this is what the Holy Spirit's speaking. So what he's about to describe as well as display is, according to this passage, inspired by, guided by the Holy Spirit that's living within him, giving him a message to be conveyed to the apostle Paul, because Paul was the one that owned the belt. It says, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So in other words, his statement is that whoever owns this belt, Paul, um, what I'm doing right now is what's going to happen to you, that when you go to Jerusalem, you will be bound. So the rest of the people, the house guests, they basically interpret this by saying, in verse 12, and when we had heard this, uh, we and all the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So their interpretation was, Paul, this is really bad. Don't go to Jerusalem, because if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. But Paul basically says, no, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Jerusalem because I'm willing to die for Jesus. It's a pretty powerful statement. So on the one hand, what we see here in this passage is a really unique thing that's happening. That in, this is what has kind of led to sort of a, a, a newer perspective, a new understanding of what we would describe as kind of New Testament prophecy. In other words, it's different from Old Testament prophets that when they spoke, it was oftentimes what we would call inscripturated. And it was written down as scripture. And it was to be um, completely lived according to and uh, trusted and believed. We would call that scripture. Versus what we would call false, false prophecies. People seeking to mislead other people in the name of God. Saying, hey, thus says God, and God wants you to each give me money, or whatever the case is. And we would call those false prophets. Because they are not leading to godliness, or not leading to the kingdom of God. They're leading to greediness. And so, somewhere in between, this is what has led some, like John Piper and Wayne Grudem and others, a host of others, actually, Sam Storms, if you're familiar with any of these names, that would basically say, we believe that there's some form, some room for a new way of understanding prophecy, in which God still speaks in today's world, that is really open to interpretation. And that seems to be what's happening here. That some interpreted this prophecy as, Paul, this is God warning you, don't go to Jerusalem. And so they're forbidding Paul. Paul's saying, I'm not interpreting that as forbidding me to go to Jerusalem. I'm interpreting that as when I go to Jerusalem, I will engage in all sorts of rough hardship. But God is with me in the midst of that. So on the one hand, 
it's viewed as or interpreted as a warning, don't go. On the other hand, Paul seems to be interpreting this as God's presence is with me and he's preparing me for what lay ahead, challenge. And yet, even in the midst of that challenge, God is still with me. So this seems to be what's going on. So this is where a lot of people would say that there are distinctions in the way. Now, again, I realize this might raise a lot of questions. Some of you might be like, what's going on here? I've never heard this before. It might be new to you. Um, but what I would suggest is this subject matter of prophecy is that throughout the you know, broad, wide uh, Christian church, there are differences of opinions as to how this is to be understood. It's one of the reasons why I want to implicate the fact that you got guys on one extreme uh, all the way on the other extreme, then you have some that are in the middle. So my point is that there is room, I would suggest, for nuances in this. We don't have to be dogmatic. We don't have to be divisive over these things, but we can try to understand how the Scripture is unfolding these things. That's why I kind of took you through all these passages to just simply say several things. God speaks. God uses human agents to speak. God uses the Holy Spirit to enable human agents to speak and the passages that we see in the book of Acts, that when this human agency communicates things from God, it needs to be tested uh, uh, and, and then figured out in that sense. So this raises what I would kind of summarize uh, as we kind of bring this home. Um, three elements, I would say, with regard to prophecy. Three elements, I think, to take into consideration with regard to prophecy. One is revelation. In other words, asking the question, what is actually being said? So if, if you sense that God's giving you uh, a prophecy, a prophetic word, you've got to ask yourself, like, what is actually being said? What's being conveyed or communicated? Secondly, interpretation. What does it mean? Like, what, what does it actually mean? Um, and again, this is where I would say there's a classic example in Acts chapter 21 that there seemed to be some sort of differing of opinion as to what it actually meant. Some thought it meant Paul should not go to Jerusalem. Paul... Um, probably being a little bit thick-skulled. He was an entrepreneurial type of a person. Paul was like, I'm going to go start something brand new. If you ever met entrepreneurial type people, they can oftentimes be like that. But they're the ones that kind of dream and vision and have big hopes and dreams and desires, and that's what Paul was doing. So Paul's like, no, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And even if it means I get bound, even if it means I'm going to get killed. Paul's like, I'm ready to die for Jesus, if that's what that means. And then thirdly, application. What am I supposed to do with it? And how should I or someone else act in light of it? These are three things that really need to play into uh, what I would describe prophecy. But I would also say that these three things also play into the study of Scripture. Okay? So when you read a passage in the Bible, you're reading revelation from God. God has spoken. God says something. But there's always that process when you read Scripture that you need to ask the next question. What does this mean? Like, what does this actually mean? And then finally, what am I supposed to do in light of this? So that's the same process that we would apply to actually interpreting scriptures. So what I would suggest is that even when we read the scripture, um, you can have five preachers and you're going to get eight different interpretations on it, right? Because it's not that scripture is always, uh, scripture is not necessarily unclear, but the way that we see, we oftentimes approach the Bible with presuppositions or ideas, or I would maybe describe as filters. We have filters over our mind and over our understanding about who God is. So when we read particular passages of Scripture, we oftentimes see through that lens. We, we would call this kind of like a, uh, a worldview. Um, think of it as that glasses. You don't look at your glasses. You look through your glasses. That makes sense? We all have glasses uh, in which we look through to try to understand and make sense of the Bible. And the same, I would say, is also true with regard to the subject of prophecy. Let me pause and just say, uh, kind of give a, a practical example of this, how this kind of worked out for us, um, my wife and I. Um, I've shared this story before, so if you've already heard this before, I make no apologies to share it again. It was just kind of a great little story for us, personal victory. So several months ago, my wife was having these really gnarly headaches. And she was, as a result of that, it was, you know, it was, it was affecting her her, uh, her shoulders, and it was, it was really, in a lot of ways, very debilitating for her. And we had gone to doctors to try to figure out what was going on. Finally, one of the doctors was like, I don't know what's happening. I, don't, I can't see anything, per se. Um, I, I think we need to do, like, an MRI, maybe take a look at what's going on inside your head. And um, as a result of that, I remember asking the doctor, I'm like, well, what are you guys specifically looking for? They're like, we're looking for brain tumors. I'm like, oh, that's horrible. That's not great news at all. And so she went through the MRI, and it turned out that there was nothing. Like, the doctor couldn't really find anything at all that would have been causing these migraines. And so um, we have some friends that live about an hour away. We went down to their house, and 
they're just good friends. They, they love God. They seek God. They've just got hearts that are like, thoroughly steeped in Scripture. They read the Bible all the time. They, they know how to handle the word of truth rightly. And these people are awesome. Uh, they were just mature people that love Jesus. And so we went to them and just said, you know, would you, would you pray? And they, this, the gal prayed for my wife and spent some time just praying over her and reading Scripture over her. And then finally kind of get, got to a point where she basically said something to my wife. It's kind of like a prophetic word and shared some things that were kind of like deep and personal and shared some things to my wife. And it was in that moment that what, what was shared, my wife received. It was like her heart was like, yes, that's what God is speaking to me. And it was a prophetic word. And that prophetic word actually not only brought peace to her heart, but it also actually led to physical healing. Like literally, at, right at that moment, her headaches went away. Her uh, seized up back stopped feeling seized. We were driving home and I remember asking her, just like, so, I mean, look, we're about half an hour away from that whole experience. How do you feel right now? She's like, I actually feel really good. You know, I remember a couple weeks later, I remember asking her, so how do you feel now? She's like, I feel good. I haven't felt you know, any, anything at all since that occasion. So what I would suggest, and again, try to make sense of like what in the world happens? Because for quite a while, she was having this intense headaches and all of a sudden they're gone. And it all happened in that moment when this word that this gal had given my wife that we believe really clearly was from God put my, heart, my, my wife's heart at rest, gave her a sense of peace, gave her a sense of the nearness of God in her life, in that circumstance, and brought about healing. I, I would say that that is a perfect example of a New Testament word of prophecy. That when God speaks something like that to us, it's a word, like Piper describes, in a spontaneous word in that right moment, that then gives us a sense of freedom and liberty or guidance and help. So, with that being said, I'm going to move on to a couple other things and wrap this up. Um, the question then is, who is to prophesy? Like, who is this for? Again, the question is, is this for an elite class? I mean, in the Old Testament, we see that, you know, Moses prophesied. We see the 70 elders prophesied. But we also know, because we read through all these passages, that the hope was that one day God would do something and the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh that follow Yahweh, follow Christ, and therefore the Holy Spirit would be living inside them, and therefore they would then speak and communicate the words of God. So what I think Paul is basically saying, 1 Corinthians 1.14, is he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So again, he's writing to, and he's, without getting into a lot of the background, the, there's kind of a discussion that's going on that Paul is basically giving some form of exhortation and encouragement and corrective to these people that lived in Corinth because they got really focused on a particular gift called the uh, tongues. And their community, community gatherings are basically chaotic, and Paul's writing in a corrective sense saying, look, the most important thing that I would really desire all of you guys do is prophesy, speak forth, be these human channels, human vessels by which, through which God communicates. Then he goes on to say, he says, now I want you all to speak in tongues. You know, Paul's like, I don't, I don't have an issue with tongues, but he's like, look, I would really rather you all prophesy. What's more important, especially when you're together, is that you each speak to each other what God has to say. Now, he goes on to say in verse 12, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. This is you know, what I would describe as prophecy, because this is what Paul has been saying. And then in verse 24, he says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he is called to account, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So Paul is saying that, look, when you become a vehicle by which God communicates and speaks his word, because the Holy Spirit's living in you, and you're sensitive to what God's wanting to say, there is the, the, the potential that people that come into that gathering they hear God speak, light is shown upon their darkness, and their world is set from being upside down to being made right side up. In other words, that's Paul's way of saying they will worship God and declare that God is truly among you. I'll tell you an example of how that oftentimes happens even within this church, within the context. So a lot of times, Sunday mornings is me talking a lot, you know, um, and communicating, speaking, uh, prophesying, if you would, speaking forth. We really believe that even preaching and teaching the Bible is a form of prophesying, communicating. 
Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, again, however you think about prophesying, it's not like you go into some weird trance-like state. It's just normal and natural, whereby God speaks to you. So there's times I'll communicate, I'll preach, and I'll have people come up afterwards. They'll be like, dude, how do you know what's going on in my life? Because everything you just said is like point for point exactly what I'm going through right now. And I'm like, I don't know anything about what's going on in your life. I don't know, but God does. And so sometimes God can say things through me and through an analogy or an expression that I say that somehow is able to get to the heart and communicate God's truth and break out the darkness that's in their life and replace it with light. That's the Holy Spirit working, shedding light. That's why Paul would say that they say, oh my gosh, God is in this place. Isn't that the type of church we want to be? We want to be a type of community of people that when others come into our gathering, whether they're non-believers or whether they're disillusioned believers or whether they're believers that you know, have had really difficult, challenging times or circumstances in their life where their hearts are broken and wounded or they're super fragile, that when they gather together, there's this overwhelming sense that, oh my gosh, God is in this place. He's here. He's not distant. He's not far off. I don't have to somehow try to work my way up to him, but that God has come near. That's what the church is really there to communicate, that God is here. And that's what Paul is saying, is that when prophecy is done right, it leads to this point where people are sensing the presence and the nearness of God. So on a practical note, I want to finish with two final things. What are some practical thoughts about implementing prophecy? So in other words, if we are all, if you're a follower of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit is living in you and God wants to use you as a vehicle to communicate, if you are kind of within that group in which Paul says, I want all of you to prophesy, then what are some practical things in which we can consider? Some of these are actually just borrowed from John Piper's little like, article that he has on this. If you want more information, just, uh, in fact, I think I posted it on my Facebook this morning, so you can check it out. It's great. So these are some things I would suggest that are helpful to really have a heart, a posture of a heart that's just saying, God, I want to be a mouthpiece for you. Your Holy Spirit's already in me. I know you want to use me, and, and I, want, I want to be effective in being used by you. Here's just a couple things to think about. One, create space and listen. I think this is one of the most challenging ones, because a lot of times we don't create space, and two, we don't listen. Part of that is because our minds are so absorbed with white noise. We're constantly listening to the on-running script of this world, and we don't take time. You know, it's like the idea of silence is one of the most unnerving things for us. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that? Like sometimes you can be around people and the thought, when it gets silent, you're like, oh, this is really, really awkward. Can someone crank up the music or someone turn on television or someone play a YouTube video? Because the silence is unnerving to us. But the reality is, is that sometimes silence can be really healthy if we look at this from an angle of saying, God, here I am with you in the silence. Is there anything you want to speak to me? Is there anything that your heart wants to convey to me? And oftentimes, I believe, oftentimes, it comes through Scripture. God just presses words upon your heart, brings to memory. It's one of the reasons why I encourage people all the time, read your Bibles. Fill your mind. This gal that we go to, this is a good friend of ours who prays over us, she, almost 90% of everything that comes out of her mouth is literally just a Scripture. Like, this lady is insane. She's just quoting Scripture. She always has her Bible in her hand. It's like every page is insanely highlighted and written and stuff like that. But even with her Bible closed, or open. She's never looking at it. She's just quoting verbatim scripture because she is so uh, steep in the scriptures that what she speaks when God wants to say something, it just calls to memory. So I would encourage you guys, uh, just read, steep your mind, your hearts in the scripture, but then create space and listen. God, what do you want to speak to me? I find for me, a lot of times, I see in images. I see, I, I see pictures. You know, it's just kind of the way that I am. I'm a pretty graphical type of a imagination. I, I see things oftentimes that way. And so sometimes when someone's describing something, I have this picture that just kind of comes to my mind. It's the way that, that I, God wired my mind to think. Um, and I'm also kind of a verbal processor. So sometimes I'll speak in a dialogue or conversation with my wife or someone, and I'm, I'm like verbally processing. So in other words, the conversation, you know, conversation 1.0 is not always what conversation 3.0 is really going to be because I'm like conversation 1.0 and I'm, I'm processing, I'm thinking through this, it's kind of like I'm doing right now in the sermon, so it's one of the reasons why second service message is often as better than first service, because first service, I'm just like testing it all out, and the first service people, I'm just kidding. Um, but the point of the matter is, is that God oftentimes speaks to us, and we just want to have hearts that are willing to listen. So create space and listen. Secondly, examine your thoughts and see what comes to your mind. Just 
Think about it. Like, what, what's coming to your mind is sometimes God might speak in a word, a phrase, a thought, an idea, an image, a picture. What comes to your mind? What comes to your mind when you're just saying, God, is there anything you want to speak to me? Anything you want to show me? Anything about my, my heart you want to show me? Anything about you know, my, my marriage you want to show me? Anything about my relationships with other people you want to show me? Anything about you want to say to me about anything anyone, in anyone's life? God, just, I want to have ears to hear. And then what is he showing you? Thirdly, ask God for an interpretation, an application. Ask God. God, what, okay, I, I, I think I'm seeing this, but what does this mean? Like, what does this mean for me? What does this mean maybe to share this with somebody else? And how do you want this to be applied? And this is, I find oftentimes, this is where prophecy can sometimes go sideways because someone might have an, Im, an impression of God wanting to speak something, but then sometimes we mess it up by giving our own, like, funky application and interpretation. Um, and then, fourthly, ask God, who's it for? God, is this image, impression, thought for somebody that you want to share with through me? And then, fifthly, ask God, when is it for? God may put something on your heart, but it might not be for that moment. It might be for later. It might be for months later. It might be for years later. You never know. Um, when is this for? And then, sixthly, ask God for courage and then deliver this message with humility and love. And that kind of leads into my like, final like, uh, asterisk type of a statement. Um, and here's what I would just suggest. This is, just, I, I think, good advice. Don't ever, if God gives you something, don't ever say, hey, God told me to tell you. There's so much hubris in that statement. In fact, that statement can oftentimes lead to so much brokenness. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine uh, named Britt Merrick, I was listening to a message. He's a pastor down in uh, Carpinteria, a church called Rally. And uh, some of you might know his story, but a couple years ago, his daughter came down with cancer, and uh, she ended up passing away. But Britt was describing how there were many, like dozens of people that would come to him, and I think probably well-intentioned, they would come to him and say, the Lord told me to tell you Daisy's not going to die. She's going to be healed from cancer. And she died. In this message, he was just like, look, at the end of the day, you've got to be really careful about this. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I've talked with people over the years who've had somebody, sometimes a spiritual leader, come to them and say, the Lord told me to tell you X, Y, and Z, and whatever it is, it's not really God, and sometimes it's just a power play. It's one of the reasons why sometimes spiritual leaders get themselves into spiritual abusive relationships, because they manipulate maybe something that God wants to do, and instead it just is a form of manipulation upon somebody else. Be really, really careful. I mean, maybe in some cases. I mean, Agabus obviously comes and he says, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you, Paul. I mean, I would say maybe in some very, very extreme instances, God may lead us. But for the most part, for like the rest of the 99.9% of us, just be better for you to say something like this. If God puts something on your heart for you to go to that person, just say, hey, I, I think God has put something in my heart for you to just consider think about. This is an impression that came to my mind or a word that came to my mind. I feel like maybe God... Um, but, but for you to test, for you to think about, for you to consider. That's a whole lot uh, more uh, effective, I feel, and less uh, destructive in the long run than just simply going up to someone as if somehow you're this prophet and you have this uh, you know, special red phone line to God. Um, it's better in the long run. So finally, closing with this, how to receive prophecy. So in other words, if someone comes to you and has a word for you. This is some thoughts on how to receive it, how to receive it. So if someone comes to you and says, hey, I think God has laid something in my heart. I'd love for you to just kind of think about this. And otherwise, impression or picture comes to my mind. Here, here it is. Here's a couple ways to think about this. One, don't despise it. First Thessalonians 5.20. Paul says, don't despise prophecy. I think the natural implication is to despise these things. I think that's crazy, that you're in that case, what are the cases. And we oftentimes despise it. Paul says, don't despise prophecies. But instead... Test it, which leads to number two. Evaluate, test. So test what's being said. Again, if it contradicts Scripture, plain Scripture, is why we love Scripture. Scripture is this literally canon. The word canon means straight edge, straight rule that we measure everything by. If it contradicts that, it's not from God. Um, and then I think as well, it's also important to uh, uh, evaluate the character of the person bringing the word. This is kind of a crazy, nut job person, and they're kind of crazy in their walk with God and they're not really walking with God or whatever and they're coming up with some crazy thoughts, then yeah, I, I think you should evaluate a person's character. But again, there are occasions when sometimes God even uses crazy nut jobs to do stuff, to communicate things. So again, evaluate these things. Third, 
look for confirmation. Does this resonate? Does this confirm things that maybe God is speaking to you? God is laying upon your heart. And then finally, look for God. Again, the idea is that the whole point of prophecy, the whole point of the Holy Spirit empowering, enabling, filling, flooding our hearts is God's word, is to then pass this on to others for their upbuilding, encouragement, and comfort. That God wants to bring encouragement. God doesn't give us words to somehow lead us to places of fear. But in other words, to give us comfort. So, there you have it. We want to be a church that grows in this. We want to be a church that is open to what the Holy Spirit has to say to us. We want to be a church that is deeply saturated with God's word. That as we read, as we study, as we put our minds and our hearts in God's word, that God then can release that and activate that through our lives to then speak to other people. So, we're going to finish. I'm going to have you guys all stand and we're going to respond to God. We respond really by three ways. We respond by song. We sing to God. We respond by communion. We partake of the communion. We have it in the front and in the back. as a way for us to, to remember the fact that we have a God that communicates. That the word became flesh, as John tells us. That this word of God that became flesh is this word that gives us life by being broken for us. And then finally, by praying. If there's any of you here that just have needs going on in your life, you need prayer for anything, we're going to have some people over off to the cross, by the cross, that will pray for you. Um, if you would just like to want to, I'm going to stand right now. And let's just respond, okay? I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We'll respond. My suggestion to you guys is as we pray, as we worship, maybe just even now, ask God, just God, is there anything you want to speak to me, speak through me? Are there people in my life that maybe you want to use me as a, as a mouthpiece to speak your life-giving words to? push back the darkness, to bring a sense of orderliness or peace or comfort. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is not for an elite class. It's for all of you. That means that all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, have the words of life inside of us. Ask God, God, what do you want to say through me, say to me? So God, thank you for your love, your life. God, help us as a community of people to be open to how you want to use us, how you want to minister and speak through us to other people. God, we want more than anything for people as they come into our gatherings to sense your power, your love, your, your nearness, God, that you're not a God that's far away, but you're a God that's near. It's here. It brings comfort. So God, even now we want to respond in, in worship and love affection, by partaking of communion, by faith, through repentance, we worship you.